Why are American students getting dumber? Do progressives really understand what elections mean? What should we make of the impeachment of President Donald Trump? We're going to talk about all of that and more here on the American Culture Podcast. to episode 11 of the American Culture Podcast. I'm Earl B., the creator and host of the podcast, and today I have four current topics to discuss with you that are shaping American culture. The topics include, first, the dumbing down of the American high school student. Second, protesters who don't understand what an election is. Third, women who want men to respect their sanctuaries. And fourth, my brief thoughts on the impeachment of Donald Trump. But before I jump into the meat of this episode, I want to wish everyone a happy new year. It's 2020 already. I know it's been far too long since my last episode of the podcast. 2019 just flew by. I could give a million reasons why the unintentional hiatus has lasted so long, but the reality is life is busy, which is absolutely a blessing to have a good job, to be able to travel and to spend time with family and friends. But I just haven't had very many Saturdays or Sundays lately that I could completely set aside for preparing and recording the podcast. My New Year's resolution for 2020 is to be much more consistent and productive with the podcast, which I really love bringing to you, and which I hope to really grow and make better in the coming months. Nonetheless, even when I'm not recording podcast episodes, I am still active on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast, and that's all together. And on the Twitter account, handle is at amculturepod. So I hope you'll follow us on your social media accounts and get much more of the type of content that I share here on the podcast. And I hope you'll tell your Facebook and Twitter friends about us so we can increase our online footprint and spread the word. One more important program note that I want to mention here at the top, the American Culture Podcast is now being carried both on Spotify and on iHeartRadio, which is huge. Those two platforms have really dived into the podcasting market to compete with Apple Podcasts and Google Play, but the bottom line is that getting added to those sites greatly expands our reach and also gives our listeners and potential listeners more options and more ways to find us. So I'm very excited about this news. And I am so glad you have taken the time to join us for this episode. Now let's jump into our four stories for today. Story number one, the results are in and Common Core is hurting our students. From an article that first appeared on thefederalist.com on October 31st, written by Joy Pullman, we learn from the headline, first Common Core high school grads worst prepared for college in 15 years. Quoting the article, for the third time in a row since Common Core was fully phased in nationwide, U.S. student test scores on the nation's broadest and most respected test, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, the results have dropped, a reversal of an upward trend between 1990 and 2015. Further, the class of 2019, 
the first to experience all four high school years under Common Core, is the worst prepared for college in 15 years, according to the report. Furthermore, on the same day that the NAEP results were released, the college testing organization ACT released a report showing that the high school class of 2019's college preparedness in English and math is at seniors' lowest levels in 15 years. These students, again, are the first to have completed all four years of high school under Common Core. According to ACT, readiness levels in English, reading, math, and science have all decreased since 2015, with English and math seeing the largest decline. Perhaps not coincidentally, 2015 is the year states were required by the Obama administration to fully phase in Common Core if they wanted to receive significant federal education grants. What are we to make of all this? My first takeaway is that we should be very wary of experts, especially education experts. The Common Core was sold to us by experts as having been developed by experts, and we were promised over many objections that they knew better than us what was good for us. And at this moment in time, as the first significant data is coming in, it appears that the experts were wrong. The question is, were the experts merely incompetent and mistaken, or was it worse than that? Was this similar to President Obama's repeated promises that if we liked our doctor, we could keep our doctor? If we liked our health plan, we could keep our health plan? Or was there another agenda being pursued that was really concerned really was not concerned with how well our children could read, write, and do math. The second takeaway for me from this Common Core results are to be wary of national mandatory programs. The conceit of the left, the socialists, the communists, the progressives, is that they are smarter than the rest of us, and that if only we will give them the power to control every aspect of our lives, they will bring us heaven on earth. They will deliver us utopia. That's what they believe. But whenever they get the chance to run a major program, they invariably screw it up. Exhibit A was Obamacare. How is that going for everyone? Now they have been given tremendous power to control what our children are taught in our schools nationwide, and they've botched that job. One of the genius aspects of our federal system of government is that 50 different states and countless local communities have the opportunity to try new solutions to problems at the state level and the local level to try to find solutions that fit their particular situations. And when solutions that really work are discovered, other states and cities can choose to adopt those solutions. Good ideas will spread. Bad ideas will cause limited harm. But national mandatory solutions stifle innovation. They are rarely successful because one size rarely fits all. And if the mandatory national solution is actually harmful, the misery is coast to coast and the damage is almost incalculable. What are all these new high school graduates supposed to do? They can't get back their high school years. They are at a competitive disadvantage in the marketplace with kids who graduated a few years ahead of them and it will take them years to close that gap if they ever can. The third takeaway I have is that we have to recognize Common Core as being just one part of a larger campaign to dumb down America's children. 
When I think about this campaign, I break it into two strains in my mind. Related strains, certainly, but distinct. The first strain is focused on the problem of inequality. The fact that some students actually perform at a higher level than others, and therefore may get into better colleges, may get, in, may get better jobs and bigger houses, and may earn more money throughout their lives. This inequality of outcomes has come to be seen as a real problem. We have historically been concerned in this country with equality of opportunity, with equality before the law. But now the left has succeeded in promoting the notion that fairness requires equality of results, that it isn't fair if poorer children don't do as well in school or if minority students don't get into the best colleges at a higher rate. But rather than attacking the root causes of why children from poorer homes don't do as well in school, which is a very difficult and uncomfortable problem, the progressives have a solution, and that is handicapping the high performers. Just make it impossible for anyone to get a quality education. Make it impossible for anyone to achieve at a higher level than anyone else. Dumb down the curriculum. Do away with standardized tests. Give everyone straight A's. Problem solved. Fairness achieved. This brings to mind a story I wanted to tell you about a coworker of mine, a woman I work with who has uh, children high school, college age, and her daughter uh, is in ninth grade, and she has very high hopes for her daughter, of course. We all have high hopes for our children. And this coworker came to me within the last couple of weeks, uh, popped into my office, and was a bit distressed because the school that her daughter is enrolled in, a very expensive, very prestigious private school that she's been attending for several years, has just announced they're going to make some major changes to the curriculum. They're going to do away with advanced placement standardized tests, and they're going to move toward a curriculum that is much more collaborative and emphasizes team learning and student-driven learning and all sorts of other reforms that are going to make it much more difficult for students to reach their full potential, which is the goal for the parents of the children in that school, They want those children to be challenged, to be pushed, to be educated so that they can do well on the SET or the ACT and ultimately get into very good universities, get a great education, and have a great chance at a wonderful career downstream. But this school, rather than push the kids and and rather than have to solve the problem of of disparate outcomes between uh, different groups of children at the school, they've just decided to dumb down the entire curriculum to achieve closer to parity in outcomes among all the students in the hopes of retaining uh, disadvantaged students, minority students, and others, and not having uh, a wide gap between the high-achieving learners in the school and the lower-achieving disadvantaged students. And my coworker was very distressed because what is she going to do? Is she going to leave her child in that environment where she's not going to be pushed, not going to be challenged, not going to be educated, frankly, She'll be expected in this team learning environment to drag along behind her uh, children who are less motivated, less capable uh, of learning and and doing the work, which is what always happens with group projects in school when you've got one or two members of a team that are super bright and super motivated and the other members of the team that aren't as bright, aren't as motivated, don't really care to be there and who just get carried along. And then the group gets an overall grade of A and the teacher can report to the principal and the school board, 
hey, everyone's getting A's in my class. Isn't that wonderful? And the, the kids who aren't learning uh, get lost in the wash, and the kids that could be capable of learning and should be capable of learning um, aren't getting the services and the education they deserve. So I was very sympathetic to my coworker, and I'm anxious to see what she's going to do. I think she's going to be pulling her child out of that school and finding another high school uh, that will challenge her child appropriately to help them achieve the hopes, dreams, and ambitions they have uh, for her. Uh, so this is not an isolated case with Common Core. This is going on uh, across the board in education, and I think it's a, it's a terrible trend because nobody gets served. In the name of uh, parity of outcomes, nobody really gets the education that they, that they deserve. Now, the second strain, what I'm calling the second strain of the campaign to dumb down America's children is actually worse than the effort to artificially impose fairness on society. This second strain, in my opinion, wants a populace that is ignorant and uneducated so that they can be controlled and manipulated. A truly educated and knowledgeable population can't be fooled by promises of the Green New Deal. Uneducated people won't buy the phony science of climate change. A people that knows history will understand why the Electoral College is important. They can understand that Donald Trump's actions in office are not even close to being impeachable, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Uneducated people won't stand for attacks on the protections afforded by the First and the Second Amendments to the Constitution. Educated people can understand that unpopular speech is not violence, and actual physical violence is not protected free speech. If the progressives can create a people dumb enough to believe whatever they see on CNN and MSNBC, then they can be manipulated and controlled, and the progressives can com completely take over the nation. But if the people are properly educated, then the progressive agenda can be properly understood and opposed and defeated. And that is why it is significant, it is alarming, that our high school students are not reading, writing, and thinking at the level they should. My second topic that I wanted to discuss with you today is I'm calling Not My Prime Minister. Protesters marching in London against newly elected PM Boris Johnson. It's, it's from a Reuters report dated December 13th. And this report uh was about the elections in Britain recently where uh, the Conservative Party led by Boris Johnson swept to a huge victory. And the report says, it's a very short story, several hundred noisy protesters marched through central London on Friday to protest against Britain's election result, chanting, Boris Johnson, not my prime minister, and Boris, 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 out, out, out. The protesters were brandishing signs that read, defy Tory rule, Walked at, they walked at speed from outside Johnson's Downing Street residence to Trafalgar Square and onto the theater district, blocking traffic and drawing a heavy police presence. This report, it's a small news story really, but this report really upset me. More than I, than I would have expected the more I thought about it. As I posted on Facebook when I saw the story, do these people even understand what an election is? Do these people even believe in democracy? I'm not sure they do. In a democracy, when we have an election, we all agree going in that 
assuming the voting is fair, the winner gets to take office and run the government, and the loser just has to deal with it until the next election. If one goes into an election reserving the right to engage in violent protests or other activities intended to overturn a valid election, then they have participated in that election in bad faith. It's like shaking hands with someone with your fingers crossed behind your back. It's not done. If you don't intend to abide by an election result that you don't like, then you shouldn't participate. Because by participating in the election, you are agreeing to accept the results. And if you violate that implicit agreement, you're threatening the stability of the democracy and the election system itself. And when I saw this story from England, it of course reminded me of the United States in November of 2016 after Trump won the election, when the Democrats protested, when they tried to convince electors of the Electoral College to switch their votes, when they protested after the inauguration in January of 2017, It reminded me of hashtag resist and hashtag deep state. It reminded me of the Mueller witch hunt and this joke of an impeachment, which we have going on, even as I record this podcast. Does the left believe in democracy? The thing with the election in England was that it was an absolute blowout. The conservatives won 365 out of 650 seats in the House of Commons. It was a gain for them of 48 seats from the last election in 2017, they earned 80 seats more than all of the other parties in the election combined and hold now the largest majority since Margaret Thatcher won a third term in 1987. The Labor Party, by contrast, won 203 seats, losing 59 over their previous position, and it was the biggest route Labor had suffered since 1935. There is no way you can look at those numbers and question Boris Johnson's legitimacy as prime minister. The entire election was a referendum on Johnson and on his promise to withdraw Britain from the European Union. And the result was shockingly clear. Yet we see protesters marching in the streets chanting, not my prime minister, and defy Tory rule. I can only conclude that those people, and perhaps the left generally, don't believe in democracy. As I believe I have said here before, the left only believes in power. If power can be achieved at the ballot box, so much the better. But if they can't win fair elections, they are just as happy to win power through corrupt elections, or through the courts, or through sham investigations of Russian collusion, or through partisan and unconstitutional impeachment proceedings, or by means of violence or threats of violence in the streets. Our democracy here in America is a miracle, and it is more fragile than perhaps most people realize. And when the progressives attack our system of democracy, when they pervert it and corrupt it and undermine it for the sake of obtaining power illegitimately, that's a precedent that causes lasting damage. It's a precedent that will certainly come back to haunt them someday, and it's damage that may be fatal to our constitutional system of government. Story number three, which is really in here for entertainment value. I don't have a lot of deep, deep uh, uh, lessons to be learned from this, but I just found it incredibly amusing. You can judge me whether I should be amused or not, but I am. The title of this story is, Men Are Showing Up to the Wing and Women Are Pissed. 
It's a story from the New York Post on December 17th. Now, before I dive into the story itself, I want to explain to you what the wing is, because I had never heard of this until I researched uh, after reading this story. And from their own website, The Wing, founded in 2016, The Wing is a growing community of women across the country and globe, gathering together to work, connect, and thrive. The Wing's mission is the professional, civic, social, and economic advancement of women through community. Membership to The Wing includes access to beautiful workspace full of cozy corners, phone booths, and conference rooms. The spaces have been designed with your needs, that is, women's needs, in mind, packed with amenities including an in-house cafe, a beauty room, showers, and a pump room. The wing offers room to take up space, allowing for serendipitous connections around communal tables while trading tips in the beauty room or grabbing lunch at the Perch Cafe. It's a home base where you land with a friend before dinner, meet for a quick catch-up, or spend hours plotting with your co-founder. So you can read that and you can see it's a women's club modeled after gentlemen's clubs, country clubs, clubs in the city that, that men have, have, have had for you know a couple of hundred years. Uh, but that's what it is. It's a women's club. But here's from the New York Post story, some select uh, quotes. The wing was supposed to be the ultimate sanctuary for women decidedly feminine in design with walls and furniture in shades of millennial pink and a thermometer set at a women's clothing friendly 72 degrees. It offers perks that other co-working spaces can't match, showers stocked with high-end beauty products, and events featuring big names such as Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Since it's not against the rules for men to be at the Lady Lair, which costs anywhere from one 185 to $250 a month to join, but that's only because legally the company can't ban men. Quote, there's usually at least one man whenever I visit, says Caitlin Phillips, 29, a member in New York for the past two years. It's bizarre to choose to occupy a space women specifically wanted for themselves. Classic patriarchal entitlement complex. At first it was jarring, says 30-year-old longtime New York member who asked not to be named. It started about a year ago, and it's getting worse. A guy even checked me out a few weeks ago. The whole purpose of the space is to not have to deal with anything like that. But all of the women the Post spoke to had the same question. Why would a man want to go to the wing anyway? Just because he can? To hit on women? To be a troll? The company's magazine is called No Man's Land. Up until a year or so ago, when the space was truly a women-only sanctuary, members said they could comfortably walk around braless in a robe after a shower. Now, they say, they're constantly looking over their shoulders, wondering who the loud dude chewing his lunch is. It's just annoying, says Caitlin White. And I'll point out, this is the second Caitlin we've talked to in this story. It's just annoying, says Caitlin, a 31-year-old West Hollywood member who sees at least one man working in the space each day. Why do men need to be there? Why can't they respect the spirit of the place? Men have to have everything. And that's the end of the quotes from the story. And you just have to wonder, do these women not understand the irony here? Is their sense of history so limited that they aren't conscious of the unrelenting procession of women into the formerly all-male institutions in the name of equality? 
the country clubs, the men's athletic clubs in the cities, the formerly all-male colleges and universities, the college fraternities, the Little League, the Boy Scouts, the men's service clubs like the Rotary and the Elk and the Lions Clubs, the locker rooms of male pro sports teams, the priesthood. And this is not to say that women's progress in many of these areas has not been a good thing, but it has all been based on the idea that men's desires for sanctuary, for a space for themselves, must give way in the name of equality. That equality of the sexes was a higher principle than the need for male camaraderie. And now, having been allowed into the country clubs and the locker rooms, the ladies of the wing have decided that they need a place just for women, and that any man who wants to intrude on this space is a troll or a creep or a loser. But truly, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. You can't have it both ways, ladies. Either private spaces for women and for men are okay, or they aren't. Just let us know what you decide. And finally, at topic number four are my brief thoughts on impeachment. And I'm going to make just a few kind of broad and high-level points here. I'm not going to get down deep into the weeds of the articles of impeachment or the procedures that are uh, being considered for holding the trial in the Senate because I think much of that is irrelevant, as you'll see when, when I go through my, my points that are a little more philosophical, um, a little higher uh, level than, uh, than the kind of the nuts and bolts. The first thing I want to note is that uh, if the articles of impeachment don't get dismissed on procedural grounds by a bare majority vote in the Senate before a trial is even held, it'll take 67 votes in the Senate to convict the president. The Senate is presently 53 Republicans and 47 Democrats. While one or two Republicans might defect, so might several Democrats from Trump-friendly states. There may be 50 votes to convict. Maybe. But there is no path to 67. None. I want you to keep in mind, as you're watching uh, television over the next several weeks, the current impeachment process is not a legal proceeding. It is a purely partisan political proceeding. It is just a continuation of the nonstop war the Democrats have been waging on the president since he was elected. It is a continuation of not my president and hashtag resist and hashtag deep state. But unlike in 2017 and 2018, we now know that the Democrats' allegations of collusion with Russia were utter garbage. The Mueller report makes it clear. The recent report of the Justice Department Inspector General Horowitz makes it even more abundantly clear, and his report goes on to show how corrupt and craven the FBI and the Democrats have been in trying to unseat a duly elected president of the United States. This impeachment is not an honest effort by the Democrats to remove the president because they know that their charges are a sham and they don't have the votes. The impeachment is instead an ongoing effort to damage the president in the eyes of the American people in the hope that if they damage him enough, they can defeat him in the election in November of this year, which is just 10 months away. It is all of a piece with the protesters in England that I spoke of a few minutes ago. Rather than accepting the disappointing results of an election they had expected to win, the Democrats 
have expended every resource available to them for more than three years to overturn that election and to thwart the will of the American people. Because for them, the highest virtue is not freedom or democracy or the rule of law. For them, the highest virtue is to hold power. To close out this topic and this episode, I want to read to you some terrific quotes from some key Democrats who were involved in the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. These quotes are from an editorial published at the Issues and Insights website, which is issuesinsights.com, issuesinsights.com, published on October 4th. So thanks to the folks at Issues and Insights for dusting these off of the shelf and bringing them forward for us to enjoy. The first quote is from uh, our current House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Again, this is speaking back during the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. And back then, Nancy Pelosi said, We are here today because the Republicans in the House are paralyzed with hatred of President Clinton. And until the Republicans free themselves of this hatred, our country will suffer. Uh, of course, you want to interpose the hatred that the Republicans had for Bill Clinton back then, supposedly against the hatred the Democrats have for Donald Trump right now, and decide, you know, how can Nancy Pelosi, who spoke back in the 90s about Bill Clinton's imp- impeachment in this way, how can she possibly be spearheading this impeachment effort against Donald Trump? Yet, she is. A couple of terrific quotes from uh, Joe Biden, who back then was a uh, you know, he's a former vice president under Obama and at the time of the Clinton impeachment was a U.S. Sit- sitting U.S. senator, therefore one of the people who's going to vote to convict uh, Bill Clinton or not of the articles against him. Said Joe Biden then, given the essentially anti-democratic nature of impeachment and the great dangers inherent in the too ready exercise of that power, impeachment has no place in our system of constitutional democracy except as an extreme measure reserved for breaches of the public trust by a president who so violates his official duties, misuses his official powers, or places our system of government at such risk that our constitutional government is put in immediate danger by his continuing to serve out the term to which the people of the United States elected him. To permit one branch of government to subjugate another to its partisan wishes, and you permit the kind of concentration of power that can lead to tyranny. So the system the framers established is utterly incompatible with the idea that sharp partisan divisions could be sufficient to impeach. I don't know that I've ever heard Joe Biden be so wise. This is probably cribbed from somebody else's writing, if I, if I had to guess. But nonetheless, that's what Joe Biden thought of impeachment back in the 1990s. And the fellow who now is uh, the House Judiciary Committee chairman, Gerald Nadler, Jerry Nadler of New York, back then said, quote, Benjamin Franklin called impeachment a substitute for assassination. He went on to say, the effect of impeachment is to overturn the popular will of the voters as expressed in a national election. We must not overturn an election and remove a president from office except to defend our very system of government or our constitutional liberties against a dire threat. And we must not do so without an overwhelming consensus of the American people and of their representatives in Congress of the absolute necessity. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment 
or an impeachment substantially supported by one of our major political parties and largely opposed by the other. Such an impeachment would lack legitimacy, would produce divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come, and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. We have no right to overturn the considered judgment of the American people. That was Jerry Nadler, you know, 20 years ago or so, um, who presided over the proceedings against President Trump in the House of Representatives within the last couple of months. So I think in the context of the current impeachment process, these are really amazing comments from people who are the leaders of the Democratic Party today. And I think it has to be clear to anyone reading these quotes or hearing them that the current Democrat leadership should not be credited with any sincerity or integrity when they claim that President Trump needs to be removed from office based on the flimsy articles of impeachment that have been voted against him. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash amculturepod. Our Twitter handle at amculturepod. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is still a fairly new podcast and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, or on whatever other platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyrighted by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests as expressed on the podcast are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon. <laughs>